The story of Connecticut's birth is one of perseverance, innovation, and a fierce commitment to independence. From its early days as a British colony to its role in the American Revolution, Connecticut played a pivotal role in the formation of the United States. And it turns out they have no shortage of folklore as well. Connecticut has a rich history of ghost stories and haunted places. In fact, the state is known for having some of the most haunted places in the United States. You know, I've come to the conclusion after doing these episodes this year that every state makes the same boast. I guess we're going to have to be the judges of this. The state's unique legacy continues to make the state a fascinating destination for history buffs, travelers, and ghost hunters. Today, we explore the state's rich history of ghost stories and haunted locations. From the infamous White Lady of Union Cemetery to the cursed village of Dudleytown, Connecticut has no shortage of spine-tingling tales to share. Join me as I delve into the eerie history and supernatural legends that continue to captivate residents and visitors alike. Whether you're a seasoned ghost hunter or simply fascinated by the paranormal, Connecticut is the perfect stop for anyone who wants to explore the darker side of the Constitution State. Do you believe in ghosts? Join me on a journey through America's dark and haunted past as we explore the ghost stories and folklore that have been passed down for generations. What scares you? Let's find out. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. A transformer explosion in Monroe, Connecticut was reported to Glenn Pennell in 1993. Glenn, who was a police officer, was joined with his partner while driving in Pennell's Ford F-150 pickup truck. They were on their way to the site of the explosion to help divert traffic away. Pennell recalls the night sky turning pink and the explosion emitting large amounts of electricity that caused the hair on his arms to stand up. Pennell and his partner were driving alongside Stepney Cemetery when the other officer shouted, Watch out! Suddenly, Pennell claims he saw a woman in the middle of the road. She had long, brown flowing hair and wore a white Victorian nightgown. He slammed on his brakes just a little too late. It was like hitting a brick wall, he said. The whole back end of my truck went straight into the air. His partner got thrown into the dashboard and the woman came over the hood of his truck and fell straight into the ground. He jumped out of the car screaming, oh my God, I hit her. He said they searched the site for the woman, but she wasn't there. There was no blood. There was no clothing. There was no one, Pennell said. There was nothing. The White Lady is a spiritual entity claimed to walk Easton's Union Cemetery, located just a few miles from where Pennell claims to have seen her on Route 59. Based on similar tales from residents, it is said that she wears a Victorian nightgown and a white veil, and supposedly walks the cemetery. One of the oldest cemeteries in Easton, Union Cemetery dates back to 1760, before the town was founded. It has also been ranked as one of the most haunted cemeteries in the nation. Ed and Lorraine Warren, the subjects of the Conjuring movie franchise, wrote about Union Cemetery in their 1992 book, Graveyard. Lorraine told The Daily Voice in 2011, I could tell you with certainty that this place is haunted. It is one of the most haunted places in the world. The Warrens also mentioned the red-eye ghosts, a pair of red eyes they claim to have been seen in the forest behind the cemetery, but not to be confused with bike reflectors that locals have placed within the grounds to scare teenagers, according to the New England Society of Psychic Research. According to the Warrens, 
Earl Kellogg was set on fire across the street in 1935, and the eyes belonged to him. A woman in her 30s with dark hair and a nightgown appeared on Ed's camera on September 1st, 1990 at 2.40 a.m., his seventh night of filming in the cemetery. According to him, dark figures surrounded her and shapes seemed to jump on and off of her. Ed realized that people had been reporting seeing this woman and the wood ghosts who engulfed her for as long as 50 years. Upon reading about their investigation in the Monroe Sun, Pennell recounted his alleged experience to Ed Warren. Pennell's account is the only sighting mentioned in the New England Society for Psychic Research's website. A possible explanation of why Pennell recalls the crash smashing the front end of his truck like he hit a telephone pole is that, well, well, before I continue, at least I should say that this is Ed Warren's theory, is that the static electricity from the Transformer turned the lady's ghost into a solid form. That's... That's absolutely terrifying. The three hospitals in Bridgeport and the police department were not notified of any kind of hit and run, and the hospital has no record of some injured woman wandering in saying that she was hit by a truck. So, On that night, he also recalls feeling overwhelmed with confusion and sorrow. He said he felt so unfortunate for no apparent reason. According to Pinnell, a meeting was arranged between himself and Ron Vexy, who reported seeing the white lady while driving past Union Cemetery in September 1990. According to Tony Spera, the Warren son-in-law and friend of Vexy, a man in 1940s clothing appeared in Vexy's back seat. A lady in a white gown stood about 35 yards in front of his car and held up her hand for him to stop. Spera said she jumped forward and a wisp of wind passed by his right ear. Vexy became overwhelmed with deep sadness at the time. When I got home, I cried to my wife. I felt so bad for this woman, like a sympathetic, sorrowful feeling. If anything terrible had happened to her, it was like I was taking her emotions, as Barra claimed. Pennell said the descriptions of the lady in white were almost the same. Sparrow said that the identity of the white lady remains a mystery, despite the numerous stories about her. It's believed to be the spirit of Ellen Smathers, whose husband was murdered by Richard Dean Jason, a man infatuated with her and tried to hide her husband's body in a sinkhole near the graveyard. Ethel Hutchinson Knott is another woman who they say might be the white lady. She plotted her husband's murder in 1920 and may be roaming the graveyard seeking a chance to tell her side of the story. According to an article written by Elizabeth Boyce in the Eastern Courier, Harriet Seeley Bryan and Harriet R. Seeley are also candidates. Harriet R. Seeley died after giving birth to a son who was also short-lived. Both women died when infant mortality was high, and 19th century literature about mourning and loss was prevalent, according to Boyce. In a sense, the White Lady of Easton is really an amalgam. In her glowing white aura, she symbolizes more than any one woman or any family's tragic loss, she wrote. Her legend is a sorrowful tale, but she is not a terrifying spirit. She represents all those who died too young and manifests all our beliefs about death and eternity. According to Spera, Ed believes the spirit is of a murdered woman who is now trying to tell people what happened to her. A lot of times when someone is murdered violently and quickly and the murderer is not found, the earthbound spirit will linger. They want the world to know what happened to them. 
They want to stay here and tell the truth because they're still so confused, Sparrow says. In addition to the cemetery's storied hauntings, several instances of vandalism have occurred there in recent years. According to an article from Eastern Courier, 51 headstones were either toppled or taken from their anchorage in August of 2012, resulting in over $50,000 in damage, which was not covered by insurance. Another 40 stones were vandalized in July of 2019. According to the association president, Darren Silhavy, families of the deceased are responsible for repairing headstones, and the cemetery is maintained by donations only. Bob Lasky, an association member who has been voluntarily maintaining the grounds with his cousin Bruce at his own expense, said the association is raising money and expanding membership to help finance repairs and maintenance. So please, whatever you do, visit, but just don't mess things up, okay? We can't talk about cemeteries in Connecticut without talking about the one in New Haven. Today, most people in New Haven, Connecticut simply refer to her as Midnight Mary, even though she was known in life as Mary E. Hart. The tombstone of her is located at the back of Evergreen Cemetery, parallel to the wrought iron fence that separates the graveyard from Winthrop Avenue. In the story, Mary, at 48 years old, dropped to the ground one day at midnight. Believing she was dead, her family buried her at Evergreen Cemetery. But one night, her aunt dreamed she was alive. After convincing the family to exhume her body, the exhumers found Mary's nails bloodied from scratching a petrified look on her face and grisly confirmation that she had been buried alive. The family believed Mary was dead when she fell to the floor due to a stroke. The woman was mostly dead, for a while. Burying her two meters under and leaving her to rot eventually made her completely dead. Her death and her odd tombstone have given rise to some strange legends, which seem to have originated from her epitaph. Inscribed on the giant brick of pink stone that marks her grave is, At high noon, just from and about to renew her daily work, Mary E. Hart, who had fallen prostrate in her full strength of body and mind, remained unconscious until she died at midnight on October 15, 1872, born on December 16, 1824. A single bold black line above the rest states, the people shall be troubled at midnight and pass away. The inscription on her grave is said to be a curse, and if you visit her final resting place at midnight, she will rise from the grave and kill you. Furthermore, if you desecrate her grave at any time, you'll die that night at midnight or shortly after. The phrase is actually an abridged passage from Job, chapter 34, verse 20, in the Old Testament and in context, simply refers to accepting fate. The complete passage in the King James original version goes as follows. In a moment shall they die, and the people shall be troubled at midnight and pass away, and the mighty shall be taken away without hand. And of course, this passage makes sense when one reads the rest of the marker. Locals and spooky storytellers have interpreted that phrase to mean Mary cursed the world and her final epitaph will be that she hated it so much for burying her alive. Nonetheless, some locals say that they have gotten to the point where they don't want to go to the cemetery, as weird things happen at night in the neighborhood, leading them to wonder whether it's someone or something else. Hey there, folks. We are approaching Friday the 24th, which is this Friday. 
and that means that seclusion is coming. Chapter 1 will be out this Friday. I cannot wait. I'm not really going to do much interrupting on that one. That one's kind of going to be, you're not going to get any of these in the middle of those episodes because I really want that to immerse everybody. So um, I will ask you during these episodes, please let me know what you think. More so than ever than I've ever asked before. I know I always ask, hey, leave a review, an email, send me, which, you know what, please keep those coming. I love them so much and I try to answer them all personally. And sometimes I have some pretty nice conversations with some people. And a lot of people, now that I'm going state to state, I'm getting a lot of people like saying, hey, if you're going to get to this state, this is where I'm from. And these are the kind of things that go on in my state. And these are the kind of things that I've seen. And please, if you have that, email it to me. Let me know. Let's have a conversation about it. Odds are I'm going to put it in the episode and I'm going to give you credit for it. So if you have something spooky that happened, please send it on over. Um, your guys' support really means the world to me, and the best way to support the show is to share it with a friend, leave a review, and if you're interested, I do have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Haunted American History. Patrons there get ad-free episodes, shout-outs, um, early releases, and, uh, things like that. I'm starting to do, you know, giveaways and things like that, horror memorabilia. Um, Yeah. If you want to hear more of me that isn't really folklore-related, check me out on my other podcast, Zoning Out. I kind of talk about the Twilight Zone there with some buddies. We go through the episodes, episode by episode, throughout every season. We're still in season one, so because the show just started. But uh, yeah, I mean, so you got plenty to catch up on. And uh, Frank, who's on the show with us, does an interview portion that usually comes out on Fridays, where he interviews people in the podcast world, in the movie world, in the indie movie where all kinds of you know all kinds of people he's interviewing and he does a really good job at that we're going to start doing live on streaming on like youtube and twitch and things like that for horror movie reviews on zoning out and uh as well you can catch me on my other podcast draft class where we just pretty much stick to more straightforward movies movies and television where it's well why is it called draft class that doesn't make sense with movies well it does because each episode picks a different theme. So like, let's say, for instance, we do one for Steven Spielberg. And we go snake style amongst ourselves to draft our favorite or what we consider the best of his movies. And just, you know, talk about them, compiling ourselves a team of movies and to see who wins. Basically, we kind of ask for audience involvement. Like, hey, who do you think won? So if you want to hear some of that, check it out over at Draft Class, Zoning Out. The links will be in the show descriptions. Seclusion comes from Friday. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let's keep this road trip of Connecticut going. Later, folks. Love you. Charles Island. A small island off the coast of Milford, Connecticut, is a place of great beauty and mystery. For centuries, the island has captured the imaginations of locals and visitors alike, with its serene beaches, lush vegetation, and captivating history. But behind its picturesque facade lies a dark and tragic past, filled with stories of shipwrecks, pirate treasure, and lost soul. You had me at pirate treasure. Legend holds that this little island connected to Milford by a sandbar has been placed under a curse, not only once, not twice, but thrice. Hell yeah, I've been wanting to say thrice for so long and I finally got to do it. 
and may still be holding a long-lost pirate treasure today. If there's a kid out there who hasn't dreamed of finding buried treasure, I have yet to meet them. The unassuming 14-acre island, now home to nesting birds, is steeped in local legend and lore, which blames the lack of permanent settlement on the island on old curses that are still in effect. When the local Pogaset chief traded the land to European settlers in 1639, apparently with some ill will, he cursed the land for the first time. Some say that the chief was upset over the kidnapping of his daughter and some other grievances. Some of the curse details are unclear. In order to reach the island during low tide, a sandmar emerges from the briny muck of the sound to create a shining causeway. As local history tells it, notorious Captain William Kidd made his stopover in Milford during his final voyage in 1699, before his arrest and imprisonment in Boston that preceded the trial and execution back in England. It has long been speculated that part of his fortune was hidden on Charles Island, underneath a boulder named Hog Rock, though he had already buried treasure at Gardner's Island near Long Island. Supposedly, the pirate placed a curse upon anyone searching for it. It turns out that Kidd wasn't the only one to curse the tiny island. After they lost it to European settlers, the Pogaset tribe cursed any structure that was built on the island and anyone who attempted to live there, believing the island was a sacred home for their spirits. As another story says, the island is thrice cursed as some 18th century sailors tried to bury their ill-gotten booty there and met with a bad end and were damned for it. If the first two curses are a bit far-fetched, it's the third that really stretches the imagination. It also involves treasure, this time belonging to a Mexican emperor. You would think that most stories involving pirate treasure would take place in the Caribbean, not up in the Northeast, but hey, what do I know? This time around, the treasure belonged to a Mexican emperor. This treasure had supposedly once belonged to Gautmosin, a 16th century Mexican emperor who preceded Montezuma. During the ongoing conquest of Mexican lands, Guatmosin was captured and tortured by Spanish conquistadors under Cortes, who demanded to know where the treasures of the Aztec were hidden. Guatmosin was executed in 1525 without ever giving up his secrets. According to the story, in 1721, a group of Connecticut sailors stumbled upon this treasure, stashed in a cave in Mexico, and returned home with it. A series of disasters befell the men, leading to the death of four out of the five discoverers. In a panic, the last man standing took his loot to Charles Island, where he buried it and thus transferred the curse to the land. Despite generations of treasure seekers attempting to find the hidden booty, no treasure has ever been found. Not surprisingly, all the cursing that has not deterred treasure seekers over the centuries from trying to find the lost pirate gold. No one has yet to uncover a single doubloon or a piece of eight but it hasn't been with a lack of effort. And as with any unusual parcel of land surrounded with pirate and Native American myths, some believe that Charles Island also may be haunted. Some have alleged to have seen glowing ghosts and phantom figures among the trees. Others have heard disembodied voices and other unexplained noises. In the centuries after the Native Americans and pirates, the island has been used for a resort, a home to a fish fertilizer manufacturing plant, and a religious retreat. Today, the island is part of Silver Sand State Park and is open to the public. It has, however, been deemed a nature preserve and a large part of it is off limits, so as not to disturb the nesting and mating of various endangered bird species. 
Welcome to the land of the lost, where the woods are dark and the ghosts are rumored to roam free. Dudleytown, Connecticut is a place where the only thing scarier than the haunted houses is the internet rumors about them. While some say that this abandoned village is cursed, others insist that it's merely a figment of our imagination. But with a history that reads like a horror movie script, it's no wonder that Dudley Town has become one of the most infamous ghost towns in the country. So grab your camera and your courage, because we're about to delve into the mystery and mayhem of Dudley Town, where reality is definitely stranger than fiction. The bygone hamlet southwest of Cornwall Village has been long favorite of folklorists and phantom seekers. Avoid Dudley Town at all costs, they say. New England legends have described it as everything from Connecticut's favorite ghost town to the village of the damned. But residents have grown tired of the tailspinners and their myths, and they are eager to put the Dudley Town matter to rest. According to these critics, Dudley Town was merely a village that failed because of the legends, which damaged reputations and often drew noise pollution, littering, and undesirables. Cornwall Historical Society President Michael Gannett said there has been a perpetuation of misinformation for decades. Go to Cornwall, they tell you. It's this real ghost town. But Dudley Town is a scam, he says. Several private homes line a nature preserve, once home to farmers, millers, and blacksmiths. Dark Entry and Dudley Town Roads, the main arteries of the original community, remain. A disused carriage route winding past stone walls and cellars filled with decaying leaves and tree branches. Walter Kilham arrived in Dudley Town in 1938, having stopped on a hike from New York to Canada. Charmed by the area, he bought 40 acres of land and built 14 structures with his own hands. Locals have nicknamed him the Hermit of Dudley Town, but tourists visit his property often in search of ghosts. When asked if any lurk nearby, Kilham replies slyly, If you believe in ghosts, I guess you'll find one. On a hilly plateau surrounded by bald and coltfoot mountains, Dudley Town was settled by Thomas Griffiths in 1738. Other families with the names like Jones, Patterson, Carter, Tanner, Dibble, and Porter joined the settlement shortly after. The settlement was nicknamed Owlsbury because of its abundance of owls, whose hooting could be heard through the stands of white pines, hemlocks, and native chestnuts. In 1747, the first Dudleys arrived. They were Abel and Barzillae Dudley, veterans of the French and Indian Wars, and Gideon, Martin, and Obajaya. It is unclear how the men in this fivesome were related, whether they be brothers or cousins. The Dudleys gained fame in Owlsbury due to their industriousness and just the number of them. A legend was started in the 1920s by local residents. According to Mr. Kilham, claims that the community's later demise was a result of the curse of the Dudley family, whose history followed them from England. Henry VII ordered Edmund Dudley to get his head chopped off for irritating court members. The Duke of Northumberland, Edmund's son, plotted to overthrow Edward VI by marrying his son, Lord Guilford Dudley, to Lady Jane Grey. The plot failed after the king's death, as Lady Jane and both Dudleys were decapitated. As a result, Lord Guilford Dudley's brother, a military officer, returned from France infected with the plague, killing most of his troops and thousands of English citizens. A descendant of Guilford, the Earl of Leicester, a favorite of Elizabeth I, 
later left England for unknown reasons. He was the first to settle in Connecticut, settling in Guilford. In the middle of the 1700s, three of his descendants moved to the Cornwall Hills. It was inhabited mainly by farmers who grew flax, wheat, and corn in the early days. Although Dudleytown residents attended the Congregational Church in Cornwall Plain and buried their dead in its cemetery, they remained dependent on Cornwall for various other services. Several legends describe the tragedies that occurred in Dudleytown, the first of which tells of the untimely death of Gershon Holster in 1792, when he fell off of an unfinished barn during a barn raising. He is said to have died a demented pauper at the home of William Tanner, a neighbor of Abel Dudley. The Nathaniel Carter family relocated to Dudleytown around 1759 and stayed in the former residence of Abel Dudley. They shifted to Binghamton, New York four years later and constructed a log cabin. However, it appears as though their journey did not get rid of the plague, as a group of hostile Native Americans descended upon their abode when Nathaniel Carter wasn't around, murdering his beloved ones and burning down the house. His fate was identical to that of his family when he returned home, with no chance of survival, as he too was scalped and killed. In 1872, Mary Cheney Greeley was the wife of Horace Greeley, hanged herself a week before losing his bid for presidency. A third story recalls how a Revolutionary War hero, Hermit Swift, lost his mind after a lightning strike struck his third wife. Folklorists say that after stories spread about the settlement, residents left. By 1900, Dudley Town has been abandoned. In 1924, Dr. William Clark, a cancer specialist from New York, bought about a thousand acres on Bald Mountain that contained Dudley Town. According to David E. Phelps, a folklorist and author of Legendary Connecticut, Dr. Clark and his wife lived in Dudleytown calmly until one summer when he had to go to New York on business. When he returned 36 hours afterward, there was no sign of her. Mr. Phillips wrote about it this way, but as soon as Dr. Clark entered the front door that had been left slightly open, he heard a sound that will stay with him forever. From an upstairs room, there was an out-of-control laugh of somebody who had lost their mind. During his absence, his wife had completely gone insane. Folklorists attribute the failure of Dudleytown slowly to the curse of the Dudley family. However, for local inhabitants such as John and Jane Leach, who have resided on Bald Mountain for 36 years, it was due to inadequate agricultural conditions and a need for more financial opportunities. What they find most difficult is not the legends associated with the town. Still, the tourists that visit expecting toilets and concession stands when there is nothing more than a highway regularly filled with beer cans discarded by motorists, Mr. Leach remarked. They don't understand that there's nothing to be seen here. In one instance, a tour group led by a guide stood on his property to see if they could feel any vibrations, Kilhem said. Other times, he had to tow cars away from drivers stuck on carriage trails. While the Cornwall Historical Society has maps of Dudleytown that show where certain families lived and a book describing its history, it does not encourage ghost hunters to visit. By publishing a booklet called The True Facts of Dudleytown, Mr. Gannett hopes to quell the legends in Dudleytown. Harriet Clark, a 90-year-old former president of a local historical society and longtime resident of Cornwall, has penned a booklet about the forgotten community of Dudleytown. She recounts its prosperous history before it gradually faded due to natural causes. In her conclusion, the author warns potential visitors to steer clear from the region. No spirits or apparitions here. 
just those who seek privacy and seclusion. Tourists are thus kindly requested not to disturb its peace. It is said that anyone who has had the misfortune of attempting to reside in Dudley Town has faced dire consequences. Over the years, there have been reports ranging from suicides to demonic possessions, as well as all manners of outrageous stories in between. The Warrens famously conducted a Halloween special from Dudley Town in the 1970s, claiming it to be demonically possessed, which kickstarted a flurry of supernatural tales surrounding it. Visitors have claimed to see spirits and phantoms, plus feel an inexplicable fear and dread. Furthermore, this place has also attracted those curious about dark forces and rituals, alongside amateur ghost hunters and thrill-seeking teenagers. It's safe to say that Dudley Town is now what most consider a triple D, a definitive destination of damnation. I thank you. Many of the myths surrounding the curse of Dudley Town have been debunked, by a Dudley descendant no less, the Reverend Gary P. Dudley. But why would anyone let that get in the way of a good spooky story? Dudley Town, Connecticut may be one of the most mysterious and infamous places in the state's history. While it's unclear whether the stories of curses and hauntings are accurate, there is no denying the eerie and unsettling atmosphere surrounding the abandoned village. Whether you believe in the supernatural or not, Dudley Town remains a fascinating and haunting reminder of Connecticut's past. As we look to the future, it's worth remembering the stories of the past and the legacies they leave behind, both in Connecticut and beyond. Connecticut is a state steeped in history and mystery, and its most famous legends the White Lady of Union Cemetery, The Curse of Charles Island, Midnight Mary, and Dudley Town have captivated generations of residents and visitors alike. These stories have endured for centuries, and while their veracity may be disputed, they offer a glimpse into the state's past and the people who once called Connecticut home. They remind us that there is always more to discover and explore, that there are hidden secrets waiting to be uncovered, and that there is always a new story waiting to be told. As we continue to journey through life, let us remember the power of these stories and the inspiration they can bring, as we continue to seek out new adventure and uncover the mysteries that lie just beneath the surface. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. 
Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories if you're brave enough. (laughs) 